Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am sitting directly across from Angelina Stanford. And Tim McIntosh is actually here. Well, on the show. He's actually here. Angelina is actually in the room, like two feet from me. And Tim is in Aruba. I'll say hi to you first, Tim. Tim, how's it going? David, it's going great. You're vacating. I'm not. I'm I'm vacating. I'm sitting. Well, I kind of want to talk about Aruba a little bit, but maybe we should warm the show up a little bit first. Yeah, let's say hello first. So, but things are going well yeah. in Aruba. It's it would be hard for things to not go well in Aruba. I mean, hurricane. They don't even get hurricanes here. Oh well, yeah. Okay, let's all go there then. Right. <laughs> that's where that's where I propose if we have a close reads close conference. Reads conference. I think it's in Aruba. It's got to be in Aruba. Well, Angelina, I, do you agree with this idea? Also, hello. <laughs> hello. I'm laughing because, uh, just so you guys know at home, um, we had a lot of technical difficulties because I'm just going to blame it on Aruba. So I think we found the one flaw is that we could not get both mics working. So David and I are sharing a mic like an old-timey radio show which means that I might be wrestling it out of his hands at various times. Like, I can already perceive he's going to just grab it and move it away from my mouth. And so if I'm quiet, it's because David has literally kept the microphone away from me. Yeah, I'm just going to swing it back and forth occasionally. I'm going to spin it back over to her, and it's got the, we have this, like, telescoping wand thing, and it'll just hit her in the face. So if you hear a loud thump and then Angelina yelling at me, that's why. Um, well, we are here. Ow. To, yeah, we are here to talk. <laughs> We are here to talk about Gilead some more. Uh, Tim, did you listen to the episode that you were not a part of? No, I did not listen to that episode, though I have heard that I suffered. My absence basically left my flank open for attack. Is that true? That we... I'm not sure what you mean. That we, Did we attack what you said? That I, I, that I got... I got like made fun of. Is the report true? 
Well, I mean, we make fun of you when you're here. So, of course, we made fun of you when you weren't here. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Angelina, can you, do you know anything? Can you think of it? I don't know what he's talking about. I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> I, am J- I am Jack's total sense of astonishment. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it was worse than me. Ma- I- it was totally worse than if we had made fun of you. We just ignored you. <laughs> yeah, this is true. We just pretty much, <laughs> we just pretty much assumed you would have had nothing to say, that you would have not been able to contribute to the conversation whatsoever, and we just moved on. So um, now, people, now, our listeners may have may have felt your absence. I decided not to get on Facebook this week just because I didn't want if it, if that's true that they were wishing you were here. I didn't I didn't want to know about it. So we just <laughs> we I've just been ignoring people. Well, we are here to talk about this is our third Gilead episode. So we are here to talk about what chapters pages 67 through 68 through 97 or something like that. Um is that what you guys read? That's what I read. Yes. All right, Angelina. Angelina say it loud. Just yell. Just yell. That's what That's what yeah, exactly. Okay, so Angelina, <laughs> Angelina read it. Um, Tim, where tell tell us a little bit about where you have been reading in Aruba. Like, what's your reading experience been like? I mean, we all saw the picture that you posted of yourself on the beach. Yes. Well, actually, of your yes. feet, which, as Graham pointed out in our Facebook message thread, there's no actual proof that that was you. So, um, I swear that was a Corona ad. I'm telling you, I actually Googled the internet trying to find the ad that you use where you just Photoshopped Gilead over that Corona. I know it was a Corona ad. That's what it, that's what it looks like. Doesn't it? That is seriously how perfect the beaches are in Aruba. So the way that I do my day is I wake up, I make breakfast and I try to get out to the beaches before everybody else shows up because Aruba is hot. I mean, it is so hot, like scalding hot. So if you don't get in some shade, you're just exposing yourself to the bright infiltration of sun cancer. So I make a point to get out there, I don't know, between 7.30 and 8.30, find one of the shady spots because they're kind of – they're just not that many – put my towel down and then I usually like read, I'll read 10 pages and then I'll get in the water and then I come out and then I read 10 pages and then I get in the water. That's kind of what my life has been like for the last week. Are we meant to imagine this being something like it's like 1960s James Bond with Sean Connery getting out of the water? Is that what we're, is that what? (laughs) That's right. That's right. The perfect Caribbean water just sort of cascading off me. Yeah, I'm right. like eyeing the horizon for a camera and then kind of giving it, you know, giving it the eye. Yeah, of course. Were, yeah. You know, I love that I, David's I, imagination immediately went to you as James Bond coming out of the water. <laughs> and my imagination, I kid you not, literally, I thought, but does the book get wet? That is where my mind went. Does the book? Because I've been with you at the beach and I know that your stuff gets wet. So I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah but, but Angelina, Angelina. His book gets wet just because he's holding it. Oh. Yeah, that's true. That's listen. I'm not going to deny it. <laughs> that, by the way, Angelina's. Did we talk about Angelina? How you saved my Hamlet's? We talked about it on close no, reads. No, I don't we? think we did. I don't think I ever got the appropriate credit for single-handedly saving the show. You did. You basically did. So, David, I I don't know that you know this story, David. We went when we were in Charleston at the Searcy Conference two summers ago. 
I left my Hamlet, you know, I was carrying my Hamlet script with me everywhere I went. Cause I'm constantly trying to jam lines into my brain. Um, and there was this, we went to the beach. What, what do you think, Angelina? Maybe a dozen of us went to the beach. Yeah, something like that. And yeah. there was, kind of, there was a rise, there was a crest in the beach, maybe, I don't know, 25 feet from the waterline. And I put my script and my towel and my hat, whatever. And the, on the script other that had all crest. of your notes everything, all of my blocking notes. It was his lifeline to this play, and he put it on the beach. This this may and, have been a bad choice. It's just a bad life choice for you, Tim. Like when you have the only copy of something that's your lifeline, maybe don't bring it to a place where it could easily blow away or a dog could actually eat it. No, it's true. It's true. <laughs> but that neither the wind nor the dogs were problems. And I, I thought there's no way that the surf is going to be a problem because it was so far away. But I guess all of us went on a long walk and it was well, we were gone for maybe an hour. And what do you know? They have this thing called rising tides and the tide came over the crest. And I Angelina, did you did I? No, you were in the water and I was being and like the super, super anxiety ridden firstborn who was guarding our stuff. <laughs> That's just you. my role in life. And I was there with another person. And so all of our stuff was there. And so the tide comes in and the water starts washing over it. And it starts wa washing away everyone's phones. And so the person I was with yells, the phones, and starts grabbing everybody's phones. And I yell, the script. And the I script. die for that script. And I got it out of the water and I saved it. <laughs> and, and, and now people talk everywhere about Tim's performance as Hamlet. The world over. Oh, I think we may have lost him. Oh, no. Tim, are you there? Oh. <laughs> Tim, you're there. Yes, I'm here. Okay, all right. You heard me munching. <laughs> um, okay, so she she finished telling the story there. Um, okay. So... You're, uh, so just, <laughs> and wait, see, now I feel like, now I feel like, now I feel like the other people that were at the beach are listening to this going, wait, that's why my phone got ruined. Cause she saved the script. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So I just want everyone to know that I asked him to do something very basic and like not difficult at all involving Facebook. And he just sent me a message on Skype saying, I can't find the right thread on the Facebook page. I'm a complete technological idiot. He's trying to say idiot, I assume, but you spelled idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't heard that, like, deliberate misspelling of idiot? Um, Tim always misspells things for the accent. Right, effect. right, of course. Um, well, <laughs> Matt Bianco is also going to hate this episode. Tim, one thing I just said last week is that Matt Bianco doesn't listen to this show because we, there's too much banter. He doesn't enjoy Matt the... Bianco yeah. doesn't like a banter. Well, well this show Matt doesn't Bianco. like Matt Bianco, so there. <laughs> exactly, we exactly. Matt, we should bring Matt Bianco on and just do banter. Yeah, like 20 minutes of it, and he just could be sitting there, like, fidgeting and Storm, sweating. Yeah. Invite him on for his favorite book and then never talk about the book. Just banter the whole time. Exactly. Talk about Plato. Well, before we talk about Gilead, um, we need to say a quick word from our friends at New College Franklin and, and Scully Academy. Tim, uh, you are going to be teaching some classes with the Scully Academy. Would you like to tell people about 
those classes and, and what they're going to be. And most of the people who, who are our regular listeners will know, but maybe they need a little bit more convincing for some mysterious, strange reason. I'm teaching for Scole Academy, which you can research at scoleacademy.com. And that's S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com. And I'm teaching one class, Greek and Roman history and literature. It begins in a couple of weeks. And I think we are still taking registrations that we're quickly running out of time. So it's a combination of literature and kind of like the historical context where there's literature. And it's all, David, it's all seminar style classes, meaning we'll be reading classics from Greek and Roman times and we'll be discussing them around the table online. It's going to be great. Are you guys signed up to take my class? Do yeah. I have to pay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, unfortunately. I'm not sure I'm not sure you're worth that kind of money, I'll be honest. I don't know. Oh, I see. I see. Are you signed up to take her class for which you also would have to pay money? Oh, oh burn. Shots I, shots fired, Macintosh. Shots fired. That's a fair question. I'd like to answer that off the air. <laughs> off the record. <laughs> off the record. Um, well, yeah. So thanks so much to Scola Academy for um, for sponsoring Close Reads this summer. Um, it's been it's always great to partner with the classical academic pre- academic press people. Um, and of course, you can learn more about Tim's classes and all their other courses at scolaacademy.com. Uh, we also need to say thank you to our friends over at New College Franklin. They are uh, sponsoring the entire podcast network, and they respect the sacrifices you have made as parents and teachers to educate your children in wisdom and virtue. But they also recognize that this can be a challenge to sustain this during the college years. Angelina, would you say that that's something you're concerned about now that your son's in co- moving into college? Very much so. How's that going the first week? So far, so good. I'm getting, I'm getting positive texts, so it's good. Uh, so one week, one weekend, all is well. Uh, through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College continues to build on the foundation you have laid. Yeah, Tim, we know. We know that Angelina sounds bad when the mic's not right in front of her face. We know. Uh, so <laughs> we're working. I'm swinging that mic over as much as possible. Uh, okay. People are going to have to just bear with us here. Um, it wouldn't be a close reads without some kind of technological issue. Really? In this one, at least the audience is, is in on it, right? Uh, so, so uh, if you're interested in uh, building on the on and sustaining the things that you did with your students when they were younger, then take the next step in your child's education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. You can visit for a preview weekend, or you can schedule for a visit at your convenience. To learn more about how to do that, you can go to newcollegefranklin.org. That is newcollegefranklin.org. Uh, and thanks to to them for sponsoring. Uh, Angelina, you also have one thing that you should we want to, we want to talk up a little bit. You have a a webinar that you're doing on Hansel and Gretel, I believe. So my first question is: Is it Hansel and Gretel or Hansel and Gretel? Oh wow, I I don't speak German. You're the German guy. You should totally answer that. I'm going to just say it all anglicized: Hansel, Hansel and Gretel. How do they say that? How do they say that in Louisiana? Oh, the A's are awful in Louisiana. They're very flat to be Hansel, Hansel and Gretel. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about this course. It's a webinar. It's what, like 10 bucks? It's through through our multimedia wing. Brian Phillips is kind of facilitating that. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk about in that course and when it is. 
I think it's September 26th. As soon as you asked me, my mind was drawing a blank. I don't have my calendar with me. Well, I believe that is correct. And people, of course, can just go to our website and click on the calendar or just on our Facebook page or whatever to find out all the details on that. But what are you going to talk about besides Hansel and Gretel? (laughs) Well, I'll be talking about some of the things I think that people have come to expect from me, which is about story patterns and and figuring out how Hansel and Gretel um, uh, aids in our understanding of the gospel. You know, one of my theories is that all stories are telling the gospel story. Uh, They're all the same theme, but they're all variations of a theme. And as you look at the variations, you'll notice that each of the fairy tales sort of emphasizes a different aspect of the of the gospel story. So in Snow White, we talked about how the emphasis there is on original sin and what is original sin and what does it do to us? What is the most basic fundamental temptation that leads people away from God? And we talked about how that fairy tale explored that. So Hansel and Gretel will be exploring a different aspect of the gospel story. Uh, And I'll be talking about some of my favorite archetypes like the lost in the forest archetype. And I'll be connecting that to uh, classical mythology and Dante and uh, because it's just a trope that's going to come up in a lot of different stories. So we'll be just uh, looking at the overall patterns and and trying to aid in our understanding of how to, you know, kind of understand these stories a little deeper. That sounds awesome. And so if people sign up, it's 10 bucks, like an hour and a half long. But if you sign up, you can get the recording. If you can't make it live, sign up anyway and just watch the recording later. Um, Obviously, you wouldn't be able to contribute to the conversations unless you can figure out a way to travel in time, which, you know, in that case, you should be doing the webinars. Um, But uh, yeah, that's going to be a great, great thing. We're doing one of those every month. Um, we've got we've got a ton of stuff going on right now at Cersei. We also have an upcoming regional conference in Colorado, which we've got uh, Tim's going to be speaking at, a bunch of other people. Um, <clears throat> you know, I just it just just hit, struck me that Angelina spoke in Orlando, but Tim didn't, and now Tim's speaking in Colorado, but Angelina's not. Maybe we need to just find a way what? to get you both at the same conference. You'd think I would think about these things more carefully. You'd think, but. Apparently, Come on, apparently Come I just, on. I'm dropping the ball here. We'll see what we can do. We've got that September conference. We've got that September conference, the Embark conference. Yeah. For local people, um, that's what. When is that's in September? Thirteenth. Yeah, it's in the middle of September. Yeah, the thirteenth. Yeah, I think the thirteenth. And so that's a one day. Yeah, so that's a, like a one-day kickoff the school year thing. Angelina and I are navigating exactly how to share a microphone here, so we apologize. As we, by the end of the show, we're going to be really good at it here. Um, anyway, let's talk about Gilead. After all that's out of the way, people have all done the 15-second skip ahead like 40 times to get to 12 minutes into the show here. So, um, They're listening to it backwards. They're listening to the show backwards. The first part, the banter part is the good part. After that, they can just zone out. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. Now, just stop the show. Now you can just skip skip ahead to where we banter at the end again. Um, well, let's talk about Gilead. And one of the things, so, go ahead, go ahead, Tim. I want to know what you guys talked about last week. I did not listen to the last podcast that you guys did. I, I kind of want to know. I'm, I'm. Well, what did you guys say last week? No, what were the main you, points? You were, you said I'm, and then you were going to follow that up with a thought. So you need to finish your thought before I before we answer your question because you didn't because you're too lazy to do work while you're on vacation (laughs) (laughs) no no listen i'm on page 111 i am so far ahead of the reading but i'm having a hard time knowing what the plot of the book is i mean i know what the plot of the book is it's about an older man who is who married late in life after having a wife young in life, and he lost his wife and his child. 
now he has a son by his late marriage and he's writing this boy kind of diary entries. I, I get all that, but what's the plot? Is the plot the recounting of his relationship with his father and his grandfather? Is the plot his relationship with his son? Do you get what my question is? It sounds like I'm being critical. Like, what's the plot here? You know, like we've lost the plot. And I'm not being critical. I'm just really having a hard time knowing what does Mary, what does Marilyn Robinson want us to, what string does she want us to grab onto here? Okay. Well, as you were talking, I was thinking we have four father-son relationships, right? Four, right? So Jack and his son, Boaton and his son. Uh, J- uh, Jack and his, no, John. Is he John or Jack? I forgot. I'm kind of John, a hard time. John, John Ames. Okay. So John, John and his father and then his yeah. grandfather and his father. So four father-son relationships. That seems to be one of the big threads that's pulling the whole thing together, right, is fathers and sons. But mm-hmm. one of the things mm-hmm. that occurs to me as I'm reading is that it's this very – Again, it, it reflects the way we think about things, right? So it's very random, as he recalls memories. But it's, uh, that was one of the things we talked about last week, that it seems random, but it's obviously not. She's very intentional. So feels like <clears throat> the longer we go into the story, she's pulling it together more. Like, I don't think it's ever going to be a linear plot, but we're in our minds putting it together. Yeah. Tim, what are the, so... It, go, yeah. Go, well, you were going to... You said while you're... Um, while you were saying what's the plot that you're not really trying to be critical. But my question is then when you ask about what's the plot, um, I guess my question is what do we mean when we say plot? Because there's lots of plots and stories and things like that going on here. Um, but what do we mean? Like, are you asking about the unifying thread? Because you know, then, then there's a number of things you can talk about. Um, are you asking, like, is there a central conflict that has to be overcome, it, as in, you know, that has that that creates the elements of the rising action, the falling action, all the things that we think of in a traditional plot? Is that what you're asking about? Or I guess, can you be more specific in what you're, you know, kind of where that question is taking you? It's the second thing that you said, David. It's what's the primary conflict? Because I think, I think, she, I mean, obviously, Marilyn Robinson made a lot of decisions where she ever really set pen to paper. And one of the decisions was, I'm going to write this as journal or diary entries or a father to a son. That was a big, deliberate decision. And with that decision, to some degree, she's made a choice to smudge what we traditionally think of as a plot line, you know, whereas the next book that we read, Murder on the Orient Express will be very, very plot-oriented. There will be a, a crisis at the beginning. There will be a murder at the beginning. There will be a resolution in more smudged than I acknowledge that. But still my question remains, what's the primary conflict of the book? Angelina, what, how would you respond to that? I like it when I can ask you a very specific question and then I can just swing the microphone over to you. So It's just all planned and prepared and I don't have to like, there's no, like I don't have to instinctively sense that you're trying to speak now. (laughs) I'm just over here jumping up and down. Um, (laughs) Well, I wonder if the essential conflict is that he's going to die and he's trying to resolve that in his own mind. 
I don't know, but it, that's what then, then they try to, Why does he talk about it so seldomly? You feel like he talks about <laughs> it seldomly? I feel like yeah, he says I feel it. Like I feel like he says it a lot. Oh, really? Like in this section, he says, you know something I don't know. You know how this is going to end or how it appears. And then he corrects himself and says, or how it will appear to end. So I feel like he's always got these two threads going about that. Who am I and, and who, what part of me is going to end when this life ends and what part of me is going to continue? And I don't know. I don't Yeah. I'm yeah. wondering if you have to have, well, this is a modern question. Do you have to have a conflict? <laughs> well, I was, well, this question is, it, I mean, this book is raising that question for me. Well, what I was going to ask you is, does it matter? Like, and, and so the reason I don't say that this next question is going to be, uh, it's going to sound like I'm being critical of you. It's not meant to be that way at all. Is there something in you that is feeling, um, uh, I so like a sort of sense of conflict, like there's a disharmony or something within you as a reader based on the structure of it or the, or the, or the non-traditional nature of it. Would you feel, do you, would you say that you feel that way as a reader or is it, or is it more of a curiosity? Does that, yeah. make, does that make sense? That difference that I'm kind of asking about? Yeah, it does. For me, I think David, it's a little bit of a lack of harmony or a little bit of, I don't know quite how to describe it, but when you're reading a book that has a very clear plot, it aids you as a reader that it sort of highlights for you, pay attention now. Here, pay attention now. And I think with this book, it's almost like a long poem in that when you when you read a poem, especially a shorter poem, it's all important. Every word is important. And there's not... The volume, um, I don't want to make, I don't want to say that there's not variation in volume in poetry. I think there is, but with a plot driven book, you know, that as, as a reader, you know, sometimes the plot tells you to turn the volume up as loud as it will go, because this moment is crucial. Does that make any sense? The volume metaphor that I'm using? Okay, yeah, but I'm gonna jump in here because so, so so this is what I've been thinking about as I as I read this book. One of the things I'm personally fascinated is the idea that stories help us to interpret reality, right? I'm always asking myself, what story am I in? And maybe this is just an Angelina therapy moment, but that's the constant question I'm asking myself. What story am I in? Yeah. And uh, psychologists talk about one of the differences between healthy people and unhealthy people is the ability to Take the events that happen in your life and put it in a coherent narrative. If you can do that, you're a healthy person who's going to heal from the things that happen to you. And if not, then you, you suffer from a variety of unhealthiness um, and mental issues. And that's just fascinating to me how essential an ability to store, mm -hmm. tell a story about yourself is toward having a healthy life. So I feel like what's going on is that he is trying at the end of his life to craft the story of his life. And that one of the, the one of the one of the points this book is making, because he says this specifically in this section, you don't always know what is the look at me moment. You don't know what the this is significant moment. And he says sometimes yeah. it's only in remembering that you realize you had a vision, 
right? So I think one of the questions she's raising is how do we tell the story of our lives? And that we, we so when we're in it, we very often don't know this is a significant moment. Does that make sense? Well, doesn't That's he say great. that at the end of that this is section? Great, Angel. At, at the very end of this section, like on page 90, 95 maybe? My, my computer's just yes, that's beeping, it. so. This um, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, so like you see where it says strange are the uses of adversity, is that what you're? Mm -hmm. So yeah, he says the strange are the uses of adversity. That's a fact. When I'm up here in my study with the radio on and some old book in my hands and it's nighttime and the wind blows and the house creaks, I forget where I am, and it's as though I'm back in hard times for a minute or two, and there's a sweetness in the experience, which I don't understand, but that only enhances the value of it. My point here is that you never do know the actual nature even of your own experience, or perhaps it has no fixed and certain nature. I remember my father down on his heels in the rain, water dripping from his hat, feeding me biscuit from his scorched hand, with that old blackened wreck of a church behind him and steam rising where the rain fell on embers, the rain falling in gusts and the old women singing the old rugged cross while they saw to things, moving so gently as if they were dancing to the hymn almost. In those days, no grown woman ever let herself be seen with her hair undone, but that day even the grand old women had their hair falling down their backs like schoolgirls. It was so joyful and sad. I mention it again because it seems to me much of my life was comprehended in that moment. Grief itself has often returned to me that, to that, has often returned me to that morning when I took communion from my father's hand. I remember it as communion, and I believe that's what it was. So, so here's another thought, okay? If we're telling the story from a third-person omniscient narrator, then it's like the voice of God, right? Then it can be saying, this yeah. is significant, look at this, look at this, right? Because we're getting that outside-of-time outside perspective that the narrator gives us. But if you're going with a first-person narrator, then, then she's right that when you're in it, you don't know. It's only in the retrospection that you can know, if you can know, which is, I think, what he says there, uh, and I think it's also raising the question of maybe it's not one linear story. That's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, too, right? Like, I'm not always in the same story in my own life, right? Sometimes I'm the star. Sometimes I'm the supporting character. Sometimes I'm the hero. Sometimes I'm the villain, you know? And, and it's all of those moments of the changing story that you kind of have that self-revelation. So I'm looking at this line on 91, yeah. right? 91, I believe that the old man did indeed have far too narrow an idea of what a vision might be. He may, so to speak, have been too dazzled by the great light of his experience to realize that an impressive sun shines on us all. Perhaps that is the one thing I wish to tell you. Sometimes the visionary aspect of any particular day comes to you in the memory of it, or it opens to you over time. For example, whenever I take a child into my arms to be baptized, I am, so to speak, comprehended in the experience more fully, having seen more of life, knowing better what it means to affirm the sacredness of the human creature. I believe there are visions that come to us only in memory, in retrospect. That's the pulpit speaking, but it's telling the truth. So I, I, think, I think it's his attempt to figure out the story of his life at the same time that he's recognizing maybe you can't, right? Maybe you don't know the look at this moment. And it, it seemed like you talk, you mentioned earlier there's the four father son conflicts and there's the one of the conflicts is uh, Ames's father and grandfather and they're at odds with each other and the grandfather seems to be saying to his father or to the grandfather's son to, to Ames's father if you follow me he seems to be saying 
you have he's basically saying you have no vision and you there's not this big moment in your life like ames's father grandfather believes that he has been called to some very specific things there's very specific conflicts he's called to overcome to use the word we were talking about yeah. like in measuring the book um that there is he was given a very specific calling a vision no matter what it's his job to do that and he he does not appreciate his son ames's father for the way that he can kind of just live his life in a measured sort of practical but still um prayerful um serviceful way does that make sense he's sort of his ames's father is sort of a workaday minister right he sort of he he believes in um strange things like peace and doing your job and doing your duty and being faithful and things like that. Yeah. Whereas for his grandfather, it's that specific moments, this big grand calling that seems to be the most important thing to him. And that is conflict in those differences. And that seems to mirror what Angelina is saying right here in terms of how, in terms of what Ames is describing about how, um, the particular, the visionary aspect of any particular day comes to you in the memory of it or opens, opens to you over time. That seems to be more in line with Ames's father than his grandfather. I don't know. I may have just taken, I may have taken that helpful. off track a little bit. Well, no, no, no. What you guys have said that that like all of a sudden I feel like the book is coming like much tighter focus for me. And now having said that now I have another like set of questions um, is at least in the section that we just finished uh, John Ames's father and grandfather, the one eyed grandfather and his and his father mm -hmm. um they became they really jumped to the forefront of the book in this section and so a question that i have is does john ames the narrator is he how do i ask this are, are we supposed to it seems like he really has a much greater respect and affection for his father's way of life than for his grandfather's way of life. And I wonder if the primary difference between the two of them is that his grandfather is kind of living out a melodrama he, where all of the good guys and all of the bad guys are known. Everything is known. And there's a specific plot and the plot will result in freedom for the slaves and, and their specific enemies. Um, and heroes. And it fails. It fails. Yeah. yeah that was and there are specific heroes, absolutely. It, it and does that feel, narrative, absolutely. It, it feels like the grandfather is sort of an archetypal story. Like, it's, it, like at least he believes in, like, all the yeah. values of all these archetypal stories, but the, but but that's not consistent with the way Ames has experienced the world. There's not, you know, there aren't these big grand moments where the archetypes can be um, can become a part of your own actual day to day existence, and so that's why memories, the buildup of of day after day over a long period of time, culminating in like the way we remember our lives, is so meaningful to him, and why the and also why the little things, the the little things that he begins to recognize as he gets older, the small beauties, so to speak become so meaningful to him. And, and yeah, the, okay, so, yeah. so this is why I think it's significant that uh, earlier uh, John Ames describes his grandfather and his friends as he, old Hebrew prophets, right? So, like, they're these Old Testament guys. They're revolutionaries. So he's looking for a war. He's looking for a battle. Uh -huh. He's totally disappointed that it didn't work. 
Right. Like we're I mean, like we're supposed to understand that he's you know, he's one of the revolutionaries with John Brown. He's out there wanting to kill slave owners. Right. Like that's what those guys did in Kansas. That's what this is. So he's one of these guys. Right. But then but he's frustrated. So so he's living in this very black and white world. Right. If I if I do the right thing, if I'm on the right side, if I'm on the side of justice, then I have to win. Right. And so there's that line Mm -hmm. where he loses his Bible in the retreat. And and um, John Ames says, I always felt there was a metaphor in that the waters never parted for him, not once in his life. So far as I know, there was just no end to difficulty and no mitigation of it. Then again, he always sought it out. Oh, that's page 90. And yeah, I really I resonated with that. This that idea that you're just like, I feel like that's how it was when I was younger that I'm, I'm always looking for a battle. I'm always trying to figure out what the right side to be on the battle is. And just that sense of frustration that you're just banging your head against this wall against these battles and you're not you're not really making a difference. Right. So he's just he's just living out. It's really it's a conflict of two different kinds of stories. Right. He's trying to live this revolutionary story. And and yeah. the, and the and the, the dad. Uh, so John Ames's father is living out a very different story. He's not a revolutionary. He doesn't want to be a hero. He doesn't want to see the world in as good guys and bad guys. I mean, even what he says about Kansas, don't even think about that. Like that doesn't matter anymore. No, no good's going to come from thinking about what happened yeah. in Kansas. So he's, but the What's grandfather's still fighting those battles for the rest of his life, right? He's got to go back to Kansas to die. That's the only meaning he has. He says he even he even says about his father that his father was trying to cover up for Cain, which I found a fascinating fascinating line. That's on page eighty two, because he's they're talking about he's describing his father. He says I was predisposed to believe that my grandfather had done something pretty terrible, and my father was concealing the evidence, and I was in on the secret too, implicated without knowing what I was implicated in. And I kind of just take a pause here for a second. One of the things that I think is interesting is, um, oftentimes Ames thinks about himself as a child. And seems to be comparing himself with his own son. And he seems to be a little mesmerized by his grandfather, right? Like, if we all have an interesting grandparent or an interesting relative in our family or something, first of all, grandparents and the grandparent-grandchild relationship is kind of a unique one. Um, but especially if it's a good one. Mm. But also, like, that crazy relative or whatever, there's something mesmerizing about that, That you know, it's that archetype, right? And, you know, if you, if, especially if it's in your own family and, you, you know, and the Civil War has been that close to, it's that recent and things like that. Um, yeah. And so he seems mesmerized by his grandfather, but he's in a way he's kind of caught between the two, between his father and his grandfather. And it's, that's one of the things about Ames. It seems like he's often stuck in, in between these relationships. He's his, his own brother and his father, Edward. Um, there's the Jack, there's the, all the different Boughton people and where he's got these different relationships with them and he's kind of stuck in between them. And it seems like almost like his role as a minister. Um, you want to say something, Angelina? Yeah. We, so, so what you're talking about is being stuck in between these, these two men made me think of, so the grandfather is this very like war hawk kind of guy. Right. And the dad is, is peace. And it made me think about the sermon that John Ames wrote against the war, but didn't give. Right. Because he realizes so he puts the relationship above the principle. Right. Like I'm going to give this fiery anti-war sermon to a bunch of people who've lost their sons in the war. This is ridiculous. These are not the people. This is not the audience for that. Right. So he's 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 found this sort of middle way between pastoring and caring for people and being relational and community oriented. But he also has these convictions, but he also knows it's not always appropriate to state the convictions, right? Sometimes you just have to be quiet. And the grandfather doesn't know that, 
right? He's always wanting to, I, I don't think he can cope when he's back in the town and he's not living out his convictions. I think that's why he goes back to Kansas, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, there's always some higher, I, I, something to be heroic about for the grandfather. Like it's a his visions um, and the way he pastors almost seem like his his he's searching for places to be a hero, um, or 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 that he's searching for some kind of higher what, higher good. Go ahead. Which go ahead. We could talk about what that. What do you long. guys think of the grandfather? What do you think of the grandfather? What do you think of the grandfather? I, I really respect his oral is the right word. Um, he's morally astringent. Is astringent the word that I want? He's harsh. He's, he is stern another level. And that is the thing that I really admire about him. And that is the thing that I can't stand about him. That you can't what about him? Stand. Oh, stand about him. Yeah. Well, you know, on ninety, I both admire it and I can't. I can't stand it. Well, on ninety, Ames says, "I believe the old reverend's errors were mainly the consequence of a sort of strenuousness in ethical matters that was to be admired finally." Yeah. Yeah. I, I That's just... right. Before what Angelina <laughs> read about the water is not part. It's funny because I. I started off like really admiring that in him. Um, and as the book has gone on, I have uh, my, my respect for him has eroded. Well, he doesn't have a lot of charity. Maybe it will come back. Well, that scene Goodness where he, no. that scene with him and his son where he, that that's brutal, Law, right? Just saying, I wanted to hear real preaching, oh, so I left, right? And and just how dis- and he keeps saying how disappointed he is. Um, I think I feel a mixed feeling toward him because I think the narrator does, right? And so I feel I feel both of those things at the same time. I feel, on the one hand, as an archetype, somebody who's willing to go in the battle, right? Who's willing to die and give his eye for what he thinks is right. I mean, what's that? That's so attractive. It always is, right? But then, right, how, how do you right. live with that guy? You know, you don't live with that guy. That's the whole. That's the whole issue of the family, right? How to how to live with this guy? Um, so so mm-hmm. there's all those tensions. But I also feel the sense that. As John Ames ages, and I think this is true of life, you forget how hard it is to live with someone. You forget all the day-to-day stuff, right? And you just remember, oh, he had great courage. He was a man of great principle. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it gives you a different perspective. But I mean, honestly, it's probably hard to live with any really heroic person because I mean, those aren't the same qualities. Well, one of the big things about this section, which goes back to the beginning part of the section that we read, like on page 72 and 73, for example, is the idea of loving someone who is flawed. Um, of the way that our flaws come between us um, can, can oftentimes overcome the things that are lovable about us. And so on, 70, um, on 73, he's talking about Jack Bowden, his own namesake, um, and how Jack and Old Bowden and whatever have a uh, have this conflict between them and it talks about how um jack's coming back and it says it's, well for me it's the top of 73 i don't know where it is exactly for you if you have the paperback version but it says old Botton is easier eager to see him uh people perhaps anxious as well as eager he has some fine children yet it always seemed this was the one on whom he truly set his heart the lost sheep the lost coin the prodigal son not to put too fine a point on it 
and this is where it kind of gets to the heart of this idea. I have said at least once a week my whole adult life that there is an absolute disjunction between our Father's love and our deserving. Still, when I see this same disjunction between human parents and children, it always irritates me a little. I know you will be, and I hope you are an excellent man, and I will love you absolutely if you are not. I love so, – so one of the things I love about this book is the, and the way she's writing is she creates these paradoxes all the time, and she'll end a section with the sentence that is the op, kind of the opposite of what she just said, but it adds this extra pathos to, to the section. So – that's one of the big the big things is like he 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 has this great faith in this disjunction between God's love and our deserving right, but then when he sees mm. his best friend loving his own son unconditionally, it bothers him. But then when he has his own son, he knows that no matter what in the future he would love him unconditionally. And what we don't see in the grandfather is this unconditional love towards Ames's father. But we seem to have, despite his guilt for his father. Ames's father seems to have this unconditional love towards his father, despite his anger, and or at least he's trying to. And so, what that's one of the big things is how do you love someone unconditionally who drives you mad, who does things to hurt you, mm. who who does violent things, who does, who's angry, who doesn't show you that he loves you himself, whether it's your son or it's your father, and um, and and but at the same time, Ames realizes that there is something there's. There is something within us that causes us to love people unconditionally. And like, that is something that comes from God. That's something that's like, maybe that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit gives us. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I've not wanted to make too fine a point of this because it's such bad theology, but it does kind of feel like when she talks about the grandfather being a Hebrew prophet, that she's doing a little Old Testament, New Testament thing, right? Like a God of wrath and then the God of peace. And it's not good theology, I know, but... From a thematic perspective, it does seem to be a little bit like she's setting up these different um, yeah. characteristics, right? So, I mean, the grandfather is wrath. He is the imperson- you know, the personification of wrath and, and righteous indignation. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and then the father is much more the, the peacekeeper and trying to have grace and mercy. And um, maybe, maybe, maybe all of that is somehow embodied in, in John. I mean, he talks a lot about the incarnation and, and how that, you know, resolves all of it, which is true that the incarnation does resolve a lot of that. I mean, he talks, this was one of my favorite passages, um, 69, the, of, of the whole section today was Lord's supper. And I preached on Mark fourteen twenty two. And as they were eating, he took bread and when he had blessed, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take ye, this is my body. Normally, I would not preach on the words of institution themselves when the sacrament is the most beautiful illumination of them there could be. But I've been thinking a great deal about the body these last weeks. Blessed and broken. God, that was so good. I use Genesis thirty-two twenty-three to 32 as the Old Testament text. Jacob wrestling with the angel. And really, that's a metaphor for the grandfather right there. Jacob wrestling with the angel. I wanted to talk about the gift of physical particularity and how blessing and sacrament are mediated through it. I've been thinking lately how I have loved my physical life. So that's all about the incarnation. Mm-hmm. On the theme of Old Testament, New Testament, there's a, there's a section on page 99. Um, hey, that's next week. The no! narrator. You read ahead. No, that no, I can't. That was not the assigned reading. I'm going to be that student. <laughs> Teacher, that was not the assigned reading. But fine. It's true. It's go a, ahead. Say ahead. whatever you need to say, and then we'll go backwards. It's interesting that there's a little quibble over um, 
this cross-stitch decoration that is put in, in the church of the grandfather. And it says the Lord God is a purifying fire. It's been cross-stitched, that, that little section of John Ames says, that's not scripture. He, it makes him mad because it fits the kind of like um, the, the kind of, it fits the paradigm of the grandfather. And so the father objects to it and says, that's not scripture. Now, I want to say that, that it is scripture some, somewhere, but it's so interesting that the father objects to that Old Testament verse the grandfather objects to his son preaching on the New Testament verse, consider the lilies of the field. Like each of them are kind of doing this sort of um, hermeneutic that excludes, mm -hmm. that says this is allowed, but this is not allowed. This is scripture, but this is not scripture. Even Well, and I just think that's really interesting. It's such a contrast in their characters and they carry it all the way into their theology and of course into their actions yes and that's why the grandfather got so mad at the negro church remember he said he went over there to hear re-preaching and then so john the dad says well what they preach about and he said love your enemies like he's really mad yeah that's right he's disappointed that's that, not right. what he wanted to hear not what he wanted to hear that section angelina read on 69 is so good um about the incarnation? Yeah, because if you keep reading, he says, in a, so, so um, he says at the end of the section she just read, I've been thinking lately how I have loved my physical life. And then goes on. In any case, and you may remember this, when almost everyone had left and the elements were still on the table and the candles still burning, your mother brought you up the aisle to me and said, you ought to give him some of that. You're too young, of course, but she was completely right. Body of Christ, broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you, your solemn and beautiful child face lifted up to receive these mysteries at my hands. They are the most wonderful mystery, body and blood. It was the most, it was an experience I might have missed. Now I only fear I will not have time enough to fully enjoy the thought of it. The light in the room is beautiful this morning, as it often is. It's a plain old church and it could use a coat of paint, but in the dark times I used to walk over before sunrise just to sit there and watch the light come into the room. I don't know how beautiful it might be. Be, might, might seem to anyone else. I felt much at peace those mornings, praying over very dreadful things sometimes, the depression, the wars. That was a lot of misery for people around here. Decades of it. But prayer brings peace, as I trust you know. Um, and one of the things that we talked about last week is the, um, the way, I don't know exactly how we said it, but the way the small little beautiful things became so meaningful to him. And here we're beginning to get an explanation of that. One thing is age. My mom sent some texts, Tim, where she was actually listening to the first episode. And when you guys were talking about being sad, she sent me these texts saying, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's sad at all. I think it's actually a happy, joyful book. And so she talks about how she was talking about how as you get older, um, small things begin to you begin to notice things that you never noticed earlier because you were too busy. Um, and that when you're getting older, your things begin to slow down. You begin to see the world in a different way, like things like water. Um, and this is the same thing here, right? The light, the light on water, for example, or the way the church is so peaceful. And, oh yeah. And so 
he said a minute ago in what Angelina read, I wanted to talk about the gift of physical particularity and how blessing and sacraments that are mediated through it. You know, he's talking about the sacrament of the body and blood here, right? The, the bread and the wine or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so that using that metaphor, though, she's tying into his character, into the way he experiences his life, the way he experiences suffering. So his theology is so tied to the way we're getting we're getting to know this character, which is a really just craft wise is really genius on her part. So he experiences his suffering. Like he, he sees the physical and the spiritual as uniquely tied together. They're not on separate planes. It's not some kind of, I don't know, Platonism or something. She's, she's not a Gnostic. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and, and it's very clear that he is not a Gnostic, right? That these physical, the physical manifestation of these, of this beauty, uh, the way he, the, the, of the things that he loved and the, the experiences that he had gave him spiritual life. When things were dark, he got, he was given peace and life through physical things, right? Through beauty. Yeah. And through prayer. But there was something prayerful about the world around him, the way he sees it too. Yeah, it's sort of a yeah. pray without ceasing mentality, in a sense. Yeah, I don't it's, know. It's like the world is uh, maybe incarnated is too strong of a world. The world is a wonderful place. The world is a wonderful place. It's enchanted, place. right? So the mystery it's is enchanted. always yeah. in in the thing. But the more that I think about this idea of Jacob wrestling the angel as a metaphor for the grandfather, the more that it's opening up to me, right? I mean. Jacob ends up with an injury, right? He grabs onto the angel and he's like, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight you till you bless me, right? And he ends up with that injury and, and th- that whole fighting spirit that you have to fight for your salvation. That, that seems to be in the grandfather, right? And uh-huh. Jacob is a trickster and Jacob is a morally ambiguous character in the Bible, right? He does some less than upstanding things. Um, for sure. So, you know, uh, yeah, but I mean, Jacob is a hero, though, but he is a saint, right? I mean, he's a hero of the faith, and so we have a lot of morally ambiguous heroes in our faith. Abraham was not always super shining, upstanding either. Um, but uh, so I, I, maybe that's the, maybe the ambiguity we're feeling for the, for the grandfather is the same sort of ambiguity you feel toward a lot of Old Testament saints. Like, you know, there's, a, so. there's a goodness there, but it's not the fullness of our Christian life, right? We can say that. Like, we don't have to draw a hard line between Old Testament and New Testament, but we can say that whatever was going on in the Old Testament was not the fullness of the Christian life. That couldn't be experienced till after Christ came. Yes. Hey, has it occurred to you while reading this book how, have you felt grateful for knowing the Bible well? Like, I feel like there is an illusion to something in the Bible on every single page. And it's not always a simple illusion. It's not always a 316 illusion. Right. I mean, this book, I, I, it's, this book would be a very difficult book to deeply understand if you didn't have a pretty good grip on the scriptures, if you hadn't read the Bible from cover to cover. You could understand, but I think a lot of depth of meaning would be drain right off it yeah well uh i was thinking a lot about how this book won the pulitzer prize in 2004 2005 and which which is really intriguing to me and i wondered if it could win it now but it's a very you know it is as you say steeped in scripture it's a very christian book of course i mentioned that uh she is a huge fan of calvin um not like the pop understanding of calvin but she's really really read calvin 
Um, and so we haven't even talked about the sense of Calvinism in this book, and I don't know if that's even necessary. But um, it is striking that it, this book became so beloved uh, enough that the world's greatest liter- literary critics, many of whom are presumably are not Christians, were so attached to it. And I'm mm-hmm. curious why that might be. Like, what what do you think causes them to find a book this this great um, to love it this much uh, when it's so steeped in things that they may disagree with? Um, I mean, we could all enjoy books, maybe, or believe books are great that are antithetical to the things we believe in. But what do you think about that, either of you? I do wonder that. It's the same question I have about people's, uh, you know, being so drawn to Flannery O'Connor. And and uh, I keep going back to this idea. I mean, and this is not to be interpreted as a political statement, but there is a perception, real or unreal, or, you know, that's not the point of my sentence, but there is a perception that Christianity is, is attacked in the public square. Um, but there are some artists, and I think of Lewis and Tolkien, Flannery O'Connor, Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson, who are so gifted as artists that somehow they make what might be a hateful statement in any other arena, they make it beautiful and people cling to it. And they must do some kind of disconnect in their head where they don't really say to themselves, this is Christianity, so that they can still love it. I I don't know exactly what goes on there, but it's fascinating to me. the, The idea that good art can somehow transcend a lot of these lines in the sands that we want to fight and die for. Are you there, Tim? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm, oh, that was I'm your listening silence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Never encountered that before. No. <laughs> what do you think of that, though? What are your thoughts about that? Boy, I, this is a – we could devote a whole podcast to this. It's interesting that you compare her with C.S. Lewis because I think one of the things that strikes me about both of them is their remarkable benevolence. They are such kind writers and I don't mean kind. I don't mean nice. They're nice people. I don't mean that. I mean, they're, they're, they're just generous of spirit. And I think about how Marilyn Robinson treated, um, Edward. It, just that one that she has John Ames refer to Edward as a good man. I just that just struck me as such a benevolent thing to do, um, a benevolent view. I think that must have something to do with the reason why critics find her to be so appealing, and why C.S. Lewis, his Christianity is at least overlooked <laughs> amongst people that might not be part of the faith or might be antagonistic to the faith. There's something about his charity that comes across in his writings. Maybe that has something to do with it. But then again, Flannery O'Connor, who her charity is, is of a very sharp and often dark nature. Critics love Flannery O'Connor also. So some of it certainly has to do with a lot of it must have to do with just the craft the excellence of craft. I wonder, wonder too, if all of those authors have in common that they're getting past this very, we talked about this a lot in Brideshead, getting very past this idea that Christianity means a set of moral behavior. Like 
John Ames is at the end of his life. He's talking a lot about a lot of different things, but you notice he has not given his son the Ten Commandments. Like, this is not a do this, don't do this kind of thing. And Lewis gets past that. Tolkien, like, they, they, they get past all of that to, like, this transcendent sense of goodness and what it means to be a human and the fullness of your humanity. And even Flannery O'Connor, who is quick to point the finger at where she thinks people have gone wrong, gets mm-hmm. beyond, as we saw, right, gets beyond these very easy categories into some, some where it's very complicated. She gets into self-righteousness and where the lines are very gray about exactly who's the good person in this category, right? Yeah. You know, I've been thinking uh, the grandfather. Oh, gosh, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm about to get in big trouble. I've wondered why she set this. She set the Civil War as the primary dra- backdrop between the older two fathers in the story. Right. And Marilyn Robinson is not ignorant of the fact that we are living in sort of a cultural civil war of some sort. And it's not, I mean, I don't want to expand the culture war into something. It's not, it's not being fought with bricks and bottles on most occasions. Um, but I wonder, I, when I was reading about how the father and grandfather differed in their view of the civil war, I just wonder if that's a little bit of the overlay that we should read into. Is this Marilyn Robinson commenting on the culture war that everyone in the United States to some degree is a part of? Am I reading too much into it? I have no thoughts on that. (laughs) David, that is not true. I cannot believe that David like sidestepped my question. That's classic, David. What are you talking about? That, that has never been a greater dater moment in a moment. Yeah, no, that's true. I pretty much, that is very much in keeping with me. Um, no, David likes to stir up controversy, but somehow stay out of it himself, if you haven't noticed that. But I didn't think about the culture war as much as I thought about there's two wars that are foregrounded in the story, uh, the Civil War and World War One. And like we talked about in Brideshead yeah. Revisited, those things are very connected in terms of the kind of cataclysmic shift they brought. So that's I've just been thinking, you know, that's a watershed. Those are two watershed moments that change the world drastically. I mean, it's almost like the grandfather and his friends World don't War have I. a place anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and of course, he talks about um, the, how the old men would come back and or the men, the men would come back from the war and some of them would have no limbs. And then years later, you'd have Confederate soldiers and, and Union soldiers in the same places. And there'd be no there'd be these old men that didn't have limbs. And then when they came back, the soldiers brought back disease. And when they came back, they, so many of them were you know, not there anymore. And you had these, these women who were left and the communities would try to take care of them. And the grandfather tried to try to honor those guys who left, who, who got lost and left families behind by taking care of their families. Um, and, and then in Ames's own time and his father's own time, you've got these other wars leaving behind these, you know, these families who have lost so many people and, and, even in small towns, in some ways, in the small towns, you know, the fabric of the small towns felt it more than, more than anywhere else because every person was so crucial to it. Um, and so 
this loss is the loss that he experiences. I think one of the things he's pointing out is the loss he's experienced in his life, the suffering that he's experienced, um, is not, it's not just him. You know, the whole community has, has suffered and lost and, um, they sort of suffer together. Um, and how, and like, what, is there a way you can suffer together in a, I don't know, in an, in a way that is, I don't even know what the word is. Um, I was the word that sprung sprung to mind immediately was honor, honorable, like in an honorable way. But that's not really what I was getting at. It's in a way that um, that offers, despite your own suffering, charity to other people. I guess I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. He seems to be exploring that idea that um, for everything he was suffering, there's always somebody else that's suffering something too. I I don't know. I, it, at least I don't. He isn't saying that. He isn't saying that coming right out and saying it. And that speaks to what Angelina is saying, where you know he's not saying you're going to suffer in your life. There's things that are going to go wrong. Here's how you get through it. Like he's not giving his son a how-to manual or a 10 commandments. He's telling stories and he's, yeah. t- he's revealing things about himself and he's, he's trying to pass on what wisdom he has. But behind it all is he's basically exploring the things that he loved and how the things that he loved, including scripture and prayer and God got him through things that were challenging because he knows he tells his son, I know you're going to deal with things. Um, and he seems to be saying we can't all deal with them the same way. You know, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think so. I think that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, we've gone, you know, a good solid hour. We don't have my dad here to push us to those hour and a half episodes every time. Um, I do have a couple guest people that I'm working on. I'm efforting some surprise guests. So um, Ooh. I'm not going to say anything about them right now, but we'll see. Um, just in case it doesn't happen. But uh, let's let's touch on some final thoughts. Is there anything you'd like to offer here at the end, Tim, before we take off and you you get back to your vacating. My, I think one of my favorite things in the book is this overwhelming um, affection that John Ames has for his little boy. It shows up in every page. He has so much like gentle affection for that boy. And the boy is young enough that it's not affection for his personality maybe he's just a boy doing boy stuff and john ames just adores him i love that it just shows up on every page just lovely yeah we talked a bit about last week what the boy meant to him as a Mm. sort of piece of evidence of god's grace so you should go listen to that episode to find out more about what we said there oh i should one i love the line where he talks about uh it's on page 75 where he talks about how um how uh he has to be mindful of his condition, his health condition. Um, but the, he says, I started to lift you up into my arms the other day, the way I used to when you weren't quite so big and I wasn't quite so old. Then I saw your mother watching me from with pure apprehension, and I realized what a foolish thing to do that was. I just loved, I just always loved the feeling of how strongly you held on, as if you were a monkey up in a tree, boy skinniness and boy strength. Nicely crafted there, too, with the, the sort of like just claws there at the end, boy skinniness and boy strength. Um, yeah. And that, but my kids are like that, you know, anybody who's had little boys, I think, or I mean, girls too, I'm sure, but he's very specific in the way he, he kind of like explores the things that he loves about the boy too. Like to, to your point, like he's, and, yeah. we, and it's very tactile, right? Like as readers, we can get this, like there's always, there's something for all of us that we've experienced before that is very tactile and physical and, um, experiential 
that we know. Like I, my kids do that all the time. They they hold on and then they don't let go. And I, I could just put my arms by my side and they're going to hold on until they can't hold on anymore, right? <laughs> and if I did that, I could do that for about a second and then I'd fall, right? Yeah. Uh, boy skinniness and boy strength. Angelina, final thoughts? Well, I love that paradox. I mean, that, it's just so many paradoxes, the right? Skinniness and the skinniness and the strength, that paradox that he's just a, a weak little boy, but he's got this strength, right? Um, I don't have a thought as much as I have a question. Oh. I need to just take the mic back here and just say something. That makes me think of the paradox of being old, right? Yes. The weakness of being old, but also the strength that comes with that, mm -hmm. which we talked a bit about last week, I think. Anyway, carry on. No, I think that's true. I think she's exploring a lot of paradoxes in here. But I didn't have a thought as much as a question for us to ponder in future episodes. Um, we've, re we've read a mix of British and American stuff, and it feels very different, even though they might be dealing with some of the same themes. So one of the things I was thinking about today was how is this an American book? How is this an example of American literature uniquely as opposed to some of the other things we've read? So that's something to talk about later. Well, I love that question. A, because I love American literature, as you know, and you, you're not as, I don't know, not as big a fan. No, but I'm trying. I'm trying. She's, yeah, you're, she's trying. But I chose this book from the long list of many books that people have requested and that we've, this list that I've been keeping, because it's American. Because we've done a bunch of British books. Um, we did O'Connor also, but the majority of the books, we did, and we did Wendell Berry, but we did a couple British ones there. And I wanted to bring in an American one that touches on some of the similar themes. Um, so I'd love, to, I'd love to have a conversation about that. So that's a great question to be thinking of. And that's a great one for our listeners to, you know, if you, if that's any, if you have any thoughts on that, post them on Facebook and maybe we'll bring them up on our next conversation. Um, so Tim, we asked you to, to choose a winner for the mug. This didn't happen, right? It didn't happen because I could not find a thread that you wanted me to look at where all the postings were. Well, I made fun of you earlier for not being able to find it. So now I'm going to go see if I can find it while we're on the air here. <laughs> But uh, Tim, tell a joke or something while I find this, so that if we can. If you can do that, I want to send a link to it. Oh, Angelina, while I'm doing this, you need to give a shout out to somebody. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. I have been so bad. So at the conference, a conference attendee who listens to this podcast very graciously purchased my copy of Gilead from Eighth Day Books, my favorite bookstore, and her name is Jara. And so thank you very, very much for my copy of Gilead. And if anybody else wants to be encouraged that this sort of thing can happen, that you can buy me books, just me, not the other two, just me, then, uh, you know, I received them care of the Cersei Institute, Concord, <laughs> North Carolina. Um, Tim, you were going to say something, I think. Am I wrong? No, I was just if you find that link, the Facebook the Facebook thread, if you find it, send it to me and I'll look for I would like a look. Okay. Well, it's gonna be hard to find it while we're on the air. So we'll just we'll pick a winner and we'll we'll announce it next week. Or we'll announce it on the Facebook page. What should we do? Should we announce it next week? We should just keep leaving the people in suspense, giving them another reason no, to listen next, next week. week. Okay, so we'll announce it next week. We'll give Tim exactly. the option to actually choose. We'll, we'll give Tim the authority here. So, Tim, so figure out how to navigate Facebook. Stay tuned. Yeah, exactly. Can, say that again. <laughs> say that again so everyone can hear him. You make fun of Tim one more time before we go. Can Tim McIntosh figure out how to navigate Facebook? Stay tuned. And with that, that is what they call in the business a tease. Uh, <laughs> Well, as we said, there's lots of stuff going on. If you'd like to learn more about that, head up, hit us up on the Facebook page or uh, head over to our website, CerseInstitute.org. Please remember to subscribe. We would love it if you subscribe to the Close Reads feed. Um, for future reference, most of the future shows that we do are going to be largely their own feeds. We're trying to 
figure some things out with that. So um, if you can subscribe to that, we would appreciate it. Um, your reviews and your comments were wonderful. Thank you so much for everything you've uh, been contributing to the conversation on Facebook and otherwise. Um, and I guess I guess that's it for this week. Does anybody need to say anything else? Angelina's shaking your head. Tim, do you need to say anything else? I'm shaking my head. Oh, you're shaking no. your head too. Okay. I couldn't tell across the Aruba internet. Um, I still want my umbrella drink. I still want an umbrella drink. We got to do this right. <laughs> uh, well, with that, with Angel- it's with coming An- to you. With Angelina's request for an umbrella drink and Tim's you know, confirmation that it's coming, I guess we'll end there. Uh, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.